Today is March 18th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestakomaki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My English name is Michelle Robinson. I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the opposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the chiefs of the Stony Chiniki and Bearspaw nations, uh, creating that Stony Nation, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Robin or Michelle Elliott, which is another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. Because my issues and life and content are apparently very triggering, if you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, Call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca if more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. For immediate emotional assistance, call 1-844-413-6649. This is a national toll-free 24-7 crisis line providing support for anyone requiring emotional assistance related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. For non-Indigenous, there are many distress centers in your line or in your area, many with a functioning 211, or you can try for a 24-7 toll-free line 1-833-456-4566. For LGBTQ2 plus and youth, lifevoice.ca has crisis supports for LGBTQ2 plus. Uh, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support Thank you previous donors for watching and supporting the show. If you value listening or watching and you can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. You can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel where you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. Uh, today is one heck of a day because I was lucky enough to come across and start speaking to Corey. Um, now, if you've listened to my previous podcast, you know that I've spoken about Lillian. And this is Lillian's husband, Corey. So I'm just going to invite him to come off of mute.
and come join me and introduce yourself in, in the way that you would like to introduce yourself, Corey. My name is Corey Ashley. I am the husband of Lillian Van Ass, white Thunderbird woman. Um, she is from Sandy Bay, Ojibwe, uh, which is Manitoba. Her and I met in Alberta, and we ended up back in Alberta where she perished Christmas night. And uh, um, I'm 50 years old. I was born 1970. She was 40, born 1980. She should not be dead. And unfortunately, she is. And this is a topic that needs to be discussed because there's too many things surrounding us that are not correct. And I plan on fighting this tooth and nail, as well as I plan on fighting for protection of other people. And people should not have to go through what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through, or what my wife had to go through on her last night on earth in their living body. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate you wanting to share your wife's story and the experience that you had that night. I um, had read Tamara Pimentel's uh, at APTN's report, and I was grateful to see that. And I spoke a little bit with her about it. And, uh, you know, he, she had said to try to contact you and see if you would talk more. And um, hopefully we can get maybe a wind speaker or other Indigenous magazines to help, uh, you know, tell the story of what you're going through. So, you know, just walk me through what are some things that um, you had seen that night that you just knew were so incredibly wrong? It first happened, 8.25, I was on my, I'm a gamer. Um, mostly I'm a gamer because I have my children on there, and my grandchildren on there, my nephew on there. So there's a lot of family, plus we got family, and I call them family, but friends from around the world in different areas. Um, <clears throat> We had a friend staying with us because it was Christmas time and he came to spend uh, Christmas with us. Uh, he said, Corey, your wife needs you right now. Something's wrong. She's in the room. I put my headset down and I went to my wife instantly. As soon as I opened up the door, she was beat red face, white lips, dripping sweat, telling me, I can't breathe. It hurts, honey. Something's wrong. I dialed 911 instantly. Took 12 minutes, 47 seconds from the time when I started my call for the ambulance to show up. Uh, two ladies exited the ambulance. They came in as quick as possible. They got in there, of course, COVID questions, stuff like that. We went through and then uh, they looked at my wife and she starts talking to my wife and realizing my wife's barely answering her one word sentences, having problems breathing. Um, she's looking, she's like, this isn't good. She, tried to take a temperature and her uh, machine wouldn't take a temperature. She couldn't figure out what was going on. It was malfunctioning. Uh, she felt my wife's head with the back of her hand. She said, she is burning up. She goes, take a look at her. She goes, white lips, she goes, this isn't good. So she listened to her lungs. She said, she's got restricted breathing in her right lung. She goes, there's something going on here. She goes, we need, we need a second ambulance. We need to carry out now because she knew my wife didn't have the strength. Um, called a second ambulance, said, when you can enter this house, wear full PPE, personal protective equipment, um, because of COVID and stuff. I, you know, looked at the paramedic and I said, is that, you're worried about COVID and stuff? And her eyes just opened up wide and, you know, I got nodding. Yes. And I was like, 
okay, this isn't good because my wife just went through this a month ago and was tested for COVID, but it was due to pain. She had abdominal pain. We've been going through that for a while. Um, <clears throat> the second ambulance arrived, full PPE. They came in. In the meantime, I helped the paramedics, of course, strap my wife to the spine board. My wife was yelling, screaming a few times. I was trying to calm her down. Uh, the ambulance attendant told me, she says, Corey, you need to follow us. She says, give us a few minutes. She says, and then follow closely behind. She says, just let us get into the hospital. They left here at 9.02. By 9.05, they arrived at the hospital. By 9.15, they had transferred her into the hospital's care. By about 9.22, I was at the hospital. 9.25, I was in that room with my wife. Well, there's no oxygen hooked up. I walk in, I'm like, what's going on? Why is my wife not hooked up to oxygen? One of her main problems is breathing. She should be hooked up to oxygen right now. And uh, nurse, well, we're waiting for the lab tech and the doctor to get here. I'm like, you don't need a lab tech. You don't need a doctor to know when somebody's having a breathing problem. You put them on oxygen. Goes, That's your first thing. I said, I'm not a doctor. I know that. I said, you're a registered nurse. And she just ignored me. Then she goes to the call button and says, the call button has to stay over on this table, which is about six feet from my wife's reach. I'm like, why? She says, well, it's remote and it doesn't work very well from here. And where we were was in the far, far northwest corner of the hospital. Down a long corridor where they brought me to. It was, I'm going to say 60 feet, I guess, 55 feet from the, uh, uh, what do you call it there, the nurses station. And down two long corridors. Now, this room, when you look down either hall, there was nothing. They were both kind of dim and dark. Doors were open. All doors were darkened. And that, so she's basically shoved in the farthest corner of the hospital away from everybody. Now, they're worried about COVID or anything. Well, number one, why is my wife not on oxygen or anything? She had just that little finger oxygen thing hooked up to her, which I found out afterwards. Those are not very accurate. Not only that, they uh, don't really do what they need to do. Uh, when it comes to medical things, there's a lot of things they cannot read, diagnose, or anything. And um, <clears throat> I learned a lot about the the uh, going ons at a hospital and the difference of how you're written up and stuff. Um, there's a, a CTAS level. It goes from one to five. Five is being very simple. You know, somebody might need a stitch or they bruise their knee or something. Whereas one, you're having cardiac arrest now. You need emergency now. I was stated very clearly by one of my investigators. She says, your wife was definitely a two. She should have been marked a two. Uh, it was a couple of weeks after I got out of the hospital after this all happened. I received my wife's medical report. My wife was written down as a three. My wife was written down as zero oxygen problems. Skin perfectly normal for her skin tone. <laughs> Arm strength, leg strength, all perfectly normal. I'm reading this going, what? I threw it the first time I read it. It took me a few days to pick it all back up and start reading again when I realized I have no choice. I have to go through this. The nurse wrote her up as a perfectly normal human drug seeking. The very bottom corner on the page was she ran out of her methadone Prescribed 27.5 milligrams for a day, and she took 15 milligrams yesterday morning, and she ran out, and she's out of her methadone. Wrote her up as she was just there drug-seeking. 
I had four paramedics, my friend here, myself here, and later on that evening, a recorded conversation or a recorded uh, video that I did of my wife, nine minutes and 41 seconds long, that showed my wife was in major problem. Now, when this all uh, started, I couldn't figure out what was going on, of course. I'm in the hospital. Why are they not assessing my wife? Um, I was informed later, even if somebody is written down as a three, there's still supposed to be a nurse every 30 minutes checking vitals, checking, you know, temperatures, checking all this stuff, making sure that he's doing, doing stethoscope, listening to your lungs. None of that happened, period, the whole time I was there. It was about between 15, well, 18-ish minutes after I got there that the lab lady showed up, and I had been already twice yelling at the nurses to do something. We're waiting on lab. Came over the loudspeaker once after I pushed the button. They just came over the speaker. Corey, we're still waiting on the lab, taking the doctor to get here and that, and you're just going to have to wait. I yelled down the hallway at them. They still ignored me. Um, when the lab tech showed up, she was rude, and I mean rude. And she's like, Lillian, you're going to have to get up and walk with me. I said, where's the wheelchair? She goes, well, I don't have one. This is a COVID room. I said, then go get a wheelchair. She goes, Look, I don't have one, and I'm not going to get one. I said, go get a wheelchair right now. I said, my wife can barely walk. She can barely make it to the bathroom back because we're breathing. Get a wheelchair. She goes, your wife can walk, and she's walking with me. Lillian, and she just totally ignored me, went to Lillian and said, get up right now. Well, I had to help my wife up. She forced my wife to walk from there to the lab. The lab's approximately, I would guess, 100 feet. I don't have the blueprint of the hospital, but I know it's past the nursing station down the hall closer to the uh, emergency door entrance. Um, actually, the admittant door entrance. So anyway, um, they did that. They were gone approximately 20 minutes. My wife was back uh, back by my side right around 10-ish, you know, 10 o'clock, 10.03, somewhere in that area. My wife never left that room again. I never left my wife's side until I was removed by police later. Now... I, the whole time, I'm yelling, you know, I'm not, not screaming or anything, but I'm, you know, yelling down the hall because it's a long ways down the hall to even see them. You can't see them. When I look down, there's a hall that comes straight out the west or uh, south side of the building, of uh, the room, down, and it goes to dark. You can walk down to there and then look left, and you'll see the nurse's station 20 feet down there. Or you can go east side of the room. And like I said, darkened hallway, all these doors were open. It was dark, but I could yell down there. When I yelled down there, all I got was, Corey, get back in that room. You're not allowed to leave that room, which is something they had told me when they took my wife to the lab. I was not allowed to leave the room. Now, I want everybody to know, in 2019, my wife signed a piece of paper. And that piece of paper gave me my wife's uh, rights for her health. I talked on her behalf. I did all the calls on her behalf. I did everything that had to do with my wife's health. I was her advocate. They didn't care what I said, what I did, what I asked for, what I pleaded for. A nurse finally came in, but she only came in to give my wife a dose of methadone, her 10 milligram nightly dose. And uh, my wife, I had to help her sit up. She couldn't even sit up. She was just, she was so weak. <clears throat> and I'm helping my wife sit up and my wife's just shaking. Like, I mean, she's just vibing, trying to even get these pills. And the nurse is sitting here, take your drugs, Lillian. I'm like, that's medication. It's medication for her pain. I said, that's not what she's here for, though. Well, 
it was shortly after that I realized things were getting really bad. My wife, my wife, when she came back from the lab, she mumbled to me, they don't believe I mean, that I can't breathe. They think I'm only here for my pills. These things were all worrying me. These were all telltale signs. Something's going on. Um, I was getting angrier and angrier, of course, which I know they were doing on purpose. They were trying to build up my anger yep. by ignoring me, telling me, you got to wait, you got to wait. Now they're telling me the computers are down. And, well, the doctor's trying to look at the results. I said, you don't need a computer to go and take a stethoscope and listen to my wife's lungs. When the nurse, registered nurse number one, we'll call her, came into the room, I requested, I said, pick up that stethoscope. It's sitting right beside the call button on the table. I said, pick it up, listen to my wife's lungs. Tell me I am not correct. I said, tell me my wife's lying. Tell me I'm not, or tell me I'm lying. I said, or even the paramedics who said she came in here with restricted breathing. She ignored me. I don't got to do anything. We're waiting for the results, Corey. You can just wait. I'm like, excuse me. My wife needs help now. Why are you ignoring us? And that's when I started to record my conversation at 11. It was 11, 22, 23. Um, and because at this point, you hadn't even gotten that, her you know, oxygen. Like they wouldn't even give her oxygen. So no, like from the there time was an oxygen tank. From the time I got there until this time, I still hadn't got oxygen on my way. Nothing. There's an oxygen tank in the room. But of course, I can't hook my wife up. And if I did that and I did something wrong, I'm going to be responsible. Yeah. Same as thoughts were crossing my head, taking my wife out of there immediately and racing to Drumheller. But what happens if something happens on the way? Now I'm responsible. Now I'm in prison for murdering my wife yeah. because she's in the medical care. So I had no choices. I was stuck trusting the fact that this hospital is going to do its job, you know, that there's going to be somebody that's going to look and say something's wrong. Well, I didn't know at this time also that the nurse had already seen my wife in the lab. Or the doctor had seen my wife while she was in the lab. Approximately 9.55 when the doctor got there, she went and seen my wife immediately. Well, I was explained by one of my investigators. She said, Corey, she's a doctor. She knows more than the registered nurse knows. And she would have known instantly looking at your wife that your wife was in trouble. She goes, it was ignored not just by the nurse, but also by the doctor. I'm like, okay, well, this isn't good. This is angering me because, like I said, I went over everything. Um, I started that recording and I had the nurse on there saying, well, your wife admitted to the doctor that she took too much of her methadone and she's ran out now. And right after that, which was something that uh, Tamara Pimento did not put on the air, was my response to it. It was actually written in afterwards. And my response was, <clears throat> yes, my wife ran out yesterday morning. However, my wife is not here because of that. My wife is here because she cannot breathe and you guys are not doing anything about it. I was getting angrier and angrier. And then this little tiny security guard starts telling me, Corey, you can't record in here. You can't record in that. And we have our rights to the privacy. The nurses have the rights. And I'm like, privacy? I said, they're not doing anything. I said, you know, have they been taking care of my wife? I understand. I said, but I do not trust this hospital. I do not trust these people. I said, nobody's doing anything for my wife. And my wife's laying here struggling to breathe. 
I said she has no oxygen. She has no help. Nobody's investigating. Nobody's looking at my wife. Nobody's checking anything. Not her vitals, her stats, nothing. When my wife, when the lab lady showed up, she took that little thing that was on my wife's finger, threw it to the side. My wife was never hooked up to anything. She laid on the bed after that from 10 o'clock on with nothing monitoring her. I got a letter from patient relations. Oh, she was being monitored and everything. No, she wasn't. I'm sorry, but they're outright lying. My wife yeah. is not being monitored. I have video proof of that. No, they can do um, that. I, I've, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I went through the system and I've seen what they did with my, my birth. I've seen what they did um, with a candidate of ours who uh, she chose to run over, you know, trying to spend $40,000 suing the, the health. Like, this is their MO. This They cover themselves up. They're self-governing. They get to pretend, you know, make up reports. That's their MO. Yeah. Yeah, well, they don't get to make them up this time. I'm not letting them. I'm not. One thing there is about me is I'm not a stupid man. And I am a very, very, very resourceful. I'm also very, very stubborn. And I am going to do everything in my power to make sure these people pay. And my wife gets justice. Because what they did, they knew was wrong. I'm sorry. This, this nurse did not like my wife. I knew that. I could tell 100% right off the bat. And I could tell afterwards when I was in the room with them when my wife was already dead. Um, I guess when, when I was uh, removed, I was removed close to midnight, somewhere around midnight. Um, I'm waiting for the uh, my ATIPS report to show up, which is kind of the protection, you know, for the police how their cameras are and their audio equipment and everything. You've got to go through a big process to get that, those details, the notes, the audio equipment, any video, which I have requested. It took me a few days to figure it out, but I did. Because um, when the police showed up, it was one constable showed up. That constable came and said, uh, Corey, they want you to leave, blah, blah, blah. you got, you got to get out of here. I said, I go, look. I said, I'm not even recording. And I showed him my phone. I said, I've stopped recording. I said, I'm here for my wife, you know, and he said, he goes, well, there's nothing I can do. They want you to go. You have to go. He said, I'll give you a minute with your wife. Well, I asked him, I said, look, sir. I said, they're not helping her. I said, my wife can't breathe. I said, I need help. I said, can't you do anything about it? He goes, no. He goes, I got no rights here. He goes, I'm just a police officer. I said, well, you're removing me, you know. I said, help me. He says, well, there's nothing I can do. He goes, it's their job. They're the ones that know what they're doing. I don't. I'm not a doctor. I said, I go, well, you're a police officer. You should be able to protect, you know, but uh, he wouldn't do anything. <laughs> That's he the refused. best joke you've told me so far, Corey. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much facts. Yeah. Well, um, they, they don't protect. I anyway. Was, yeah. The, like I have uh, podcasts on their lack of protection for indigenous women. Yeah, there, there was none, you yeah. know, and I'm sorry, I'm telling him my wife cannot breathe. He can, he can see her. She's laid over. He can see my wife's not doing good. I went to my wife. Well, when I tell my wife, I love you. She always says, I love you back. Always. All I got was a mumble. My wife was going down fast. I knew she was going from a two to a one. Now that I understand the CTAS scale. Um, it wasn't good. And I had no choice but to be removed from this hospital. The police took me and walked me outside. Um, of course, you know, take off the COVID stuff. As I'm walking outside, he says, Corey, can you wait in your vehicle for me? 
I said, yep. So I started a second recording when I was in my vehicle. He wasn't gone that long, a few minutes, and then he came back out. And uh, I had him on recording. Of course, I didn't pick up my phone. It's just all the, the here on there is the audio. I kind of had a chuckle with him when I found out who he was because I had a separate case going with him, but I never met him. And then I said to him, I said, he goes, well, Corey he goes, they've taken her vitals and that, and she's doing fine. And I'm like, yeah, no, she's not. But I'm not going to argue with the police because I'm not about to get myself arrested and not be able to do anything. Yeah. He said, he goes, Corey, he says, she'll be fine. You'll be able to pick her up in the morning. They're going to keep her for observation overnight. I'm like, okay. He goes, yeah. He goes, they decided to keep her. Well, I know they're keeping her because, you know, I argued with them. And, and I told them when I was walking out of the hospital, I said, if you do not help my wife and protect my wife and something happens, you guys will rue the day. Now, they can take that however they want, but it's a straight up legal statement. They will rue the day. I will legally, legally take them down. And I am doing so. I am doing just that. I have requested third party unbiased investigation an unbiased investigation means i want an indigenous investigation done on this i have requested it through my wife's band i requested it through grand chief jerry daniel's office i've been promised hasn't happened yet but i've been promised this is going to happen because my wife was first nations i have a bunch of investigations going but every one of them they're all white investigators they're all white investigations that's not unbiased. I'm sorry, that's all biased. And I'm white myself, as you can see. I'm actually English, English, Irish, Scottish, Ukrainian, Cree, and French. Ah. Oh, you can't. No, oh, okay, you, good. You, well, you've never had I'm English, on. Irish, Ukrainian, Scottish, Cree, and French. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that. Should I put video on? I can. Yeah, that would have been that? great. Oh, well, that would help. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. That's okay. I guess we should have figured that out earlier. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm white. Uh, I do have some Cree in me, but uh, when I first met my wife, I didn't care. I looked at her and I fell in love at first sight. I asked her many, many times through our relationship because it was almost 17 years. And I said to her, I said, well, honey, why me? I said, of any guy, I said, you know, at the time I was toothless bald you know and yeah i worked hard but she looked at me and she says you grew on me (laughs) i've never had so much love in my life it took us years it took us years we went through you know the ups and downs of every family and relationship do but we got to a point where there was love and there was no way stopping it um the last few years had been the most amazing uh we moved to this town to actually help out a white couple of our uh, friend of ours, the pastor who married us and his wife. His wife has MS. Uh, apparently, she got a broken back, and then they were at a Bible study, and she fell off the stairs at the bow when they were leaving and broke her arm. His job was in jeopardy because, of course, health people can't pick people up, can't move them around. So he called me. We talked. We were living in BC at the time. And I told my wife, and she says, Well, how come you're not packing? <laughs> I'm like, What? She goes, We're moving there now. And so we did. She just, she didn't care. She wanted to be here to help. And that was who my wife was. Um, well, after I was removed, like I said, I did the video. I was called back at uh, 2.37 a.m. I had fallen asleep just before 2. I fell asleep in my chair. And 
And I had all these thoughts run through my head, of course, and I get this phone call and then a second phone call because I didn't wake up to the first one. I went to answer the second one and I just missed it. And I, I listened to the recording. Corey, get here now. Corey, call the hospital immediately. Your wife stopped breathing. I'm like, okay, so I called the hospital. Didn't ring, ring and it happened. They had answered and I'm, I can't guarantee it, but I'd seen, I'm pretty sure it was the doctor that answered and said, uh, Corey, your wife stopped breathing. I said, well, is she okay? She goes, no. And I hung up the phone and I raced to the hospital. That only took me two minutes because I'm not part from the hospital and I got past the little truck. Um, I got there and I was brought in by what I thought was police, but it was actually hospital security. They had called back from Drumheller. So they had time to set this all up and have the people in there and have the people down the halls, people in the, in the room with my wife. And it was a packed little tiny room. After I put on a mask, was brought down to this room. Um, I seen the one nurse, she was standing at the end, calling things out. And uh, she was just standing there. She stared right at me when she said it's been 45 minutes with no pulse. And she said since we found her, but I found out that was something else to do with, uh, wasn't really since they found her. Um, I, I went over, like I said, everything I knew when I walked in that room, my wife was dead. I knew right away there was no life there. She had been gone, and she'd been gone for a long time. They were pushing a stool up. I sat down. They're like, don't lean back. You're on a stool. I could tell. I'm not stupid. Um, a few of them tried looking at me, went to say something. I said, don't even look at me. I said, you guys killed my wife. Yep. I'm, uh, of course, calling out my wife's name, trying to get her to come back. And that's when I put my hand under the blanket, and I touched my wife's leg, and it was cold. There was no warmth. I knew my wife had been gone fever. for a while. I. She went from a burning fever to her body's now cold. There's, you know, it's it was stiff and cold. I touched it. I went to squeeze her leg, and it was stiff. So I now know my wife's been dead for a while. Yeah. Your body temperature only drops 1.5 degrees per hour after death. So it would have to be quite a bit significant for me to notice a temperature difference. And... No, I didn't. There was no warmth on her, so I got uh, escorted out by the security, which I thought was police. He's like, "Corey, don't do this and that." So I guess he seen something in me. I was probably about to flip, which I'm guessing I was. I can't really say because my mind was kind of going nuts at that second, and I just screamed at them, "You killed my wife! You killed my wife!" You know, and he's. He's Corey, come on, you gotta go. Let's get you out of here. He says, You gotta do this legally, Corey. He says, He goes, You you do this, you're gonna end up in jail. So let's go. And he basically walked me down the hallway, kind of pushing me, guiding me, and got me out of the hospital. I walked straight to my truck, hopped in, drove home. Hit my knees, I yelled to my friend, my wife's dead. And then uh first call I made was to her mother. And unfortunately, she put me on speakerphone, and my nephew, he heard it, and he called her mom. Very close relationship. Calls me daddy. And I just heard him scream, and it ripped me apart. My anger. Oh. <laughs> I, Sorry. No, I understand. I mean, I... <sighs> There's nothing worse than hearing. Anyway, called her mother, called her dad, 
there freaking out. Their dad calls the hospital. He gets told they think we gave we think we gave her too much drugs and she overdosed or that's what they tried to say to him. They gave her her nightly dose of ten milligrams. Now give me a break. That's that, there's an overdose. You're calling withdrawal all night. They're trying to say it's drug related. She's seeking. Paramedics said she could had a breathing problem. You could see on my video it was a breathing problem. My wife was at forty breaths per minute. Normal is eight to sixteen, and that was at eleven thirty at night. <laughs> Um, on the report, it says that this nurse, number one nurse, was left alone with my wife. That they decided at 1233 to move my wife from the COVID room to room 104. Now, they didn't get the test results for COVID back till the, seven, uh, till the 27th, two days later. Why were they moving her? Why did they remove her from a room that everything could be wheeled into? It's the COVID room. It's a protection room. Why was she moved? And why was she moved by the one nurse only that lied on the forms? Fabricated the forms. Well, I've done a lot of investigating. I tore my wife's entire medical report apart. I wrote a 10-page letter to the RCMP and to whom it may concern as to this report and what I discovered myself. I don't want to go into details on that right now. Um, once I have further information and can give further information, maybe we'll do another cast on this. Um, but anyway, what I did find out was uh, pretty disgusting. And uh, <clears throat> they said that this nurse was alone and at 12.57, apparently, is when my wife started having a breathing, hyperventilating, and then going into cardiac arrest. At two minutes later, she yelled for another nurse. The nurse came in the room and found my wife face down on the bed in room 104. No heartbeat, no respiration, no pulse. Uh -huh. Face down on the bed for some reason. Not sure why you'd be face down. I know why she was, but I'm leaving that. Um, anyway, then one minute later, the MD was called in. Then people started taking notes. They started CPR a couple minutes later. And like I said, they've been saying withdrawals all night. And at uh, 1.05, they hit her with Narcan. Now, I don't know if any of you know anything about Narcan, but there's only one use for Narcan. And that's overdose. At 109, they hit her again with Narcan. Did nothing. Well, of course, it's not going to do anything. She's not overdosing. And all night, you've been stating it was withdrawal and drug over or, or drug uh, use, and she needs methadone. And now you're hitting her with an overdose drug. They waited till 120 to hit her with the first dose of epinephrine. You can hit them with one to three milligrams. They gave her a one milligram shot of epinephrine. It states in her file. That at 120, when they gave her the dose of epinephrine, at 122, she had a palpable pulse at 97, but no heartbeat or respiration. <laughs> um, then it went away. They watched her. It went away a few minutes later. They started doing CPR again. Then they gave her another one milligram shot of epinephrine. They got another palpable pulse at 79 with no heartbeat, no respiration. I contacted a doctor and I said, can you have a palatable pulse with no heartbeat? Because from what I've understood and what I've read, 
That's kind of impossible. You can't have a pulse without a heartbeat, Corey. Plain and simple. There is no pulse without a heartbeat. I said, okay, then that explains a lot. Thank you. And uh, went into some more details with that doctor. I actually sent a very special doctor um, the report with covered out names, of course, and stuff just to see what he has to say. And uh, he said he's going over it. He's looking at it. And uh, he agrees with me. That was definitely not life-saving at all. Uh, that was made sure to make sure that she and my wife didn't come back. Um, there's only one reason I can think of why they wouldn't want my wife to come back. And it's not just the fact of in the beginning, of course, she either went down. It's There was another reason on top of that. And uh, I'm that's going to come out later. That's going to come out in courts. It's going to come out against... Uh, this and like I said, this nurse right now. Uh, my first investigation was done by Protection for People in Care. She's made four recommendations. Um, one of them was a very simple one: all patients should be transported by wheelchair. You know, all right? What you're a three on the seat test, a two on the seat test. What you should be in a wheelchair, or you know, getting things. Um, not once did they even try to use a defibrillator on my wife. Not once anywhere in the records does it show them trying to bump start my wife's heart. I, I don't know I, how these I, I don't know about that you, night. but yeah. to me, well, that's what I'm kind of wondering. How How is it possible to sleep at night? You know, the one nurse uh, that was writing all the forms and stuff, she was RN number two, I do believe, whited out her name on the form. At the bottom, after all the signing and everything through the night, she whited out her name. Now, that is illegal on a medical form. I found that out as well. I'm pretty sure she's the one who, you know, she's probably having a lot of trouble sleeping at night right now. Oh, I doubt it. These racists never have a problem with killing people. We have books about the genocide from the medical industry. We have books on it. Like I just feel that if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to white out your name, you have some guilt. You're hiding something. You don't want to be discovered, talked to, or anything. You have some guilt. There has to be some guilt in that one person. And not because they knew what happened. And yeah, it's plain and simple murder to me. I have said it from day one. This town, of course, has gone right against me. I've had lots of, you know, well, not the whole town, but a good portion of people because they think, you know, they've been bullying me. One guy put out a video of a dying native woman on drugs, laughing, saying, ha, 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 there's Corey Ashley's wife. Wow. Now, um, this guy's been, yeah, this guy's been bullying me since a few months after we got to this town, along with his little band of bullies. Um, I was told by the police and that, that they, you know, investigated, went through, yeah, we went through the whole thing, talked to the bylaw, because in 2012, it was called Soviet Hannah right up in ctv and uh ctv you know there was a bullying bylaw put in this town in 2012 because of how bad the bullying was back then i have letters from people uh one guy that says his his kid stood up for himself in school and was bullied so bad they're moving that's pretty bad people are moving because of bullying um the police officer went to the bylaw officer the bylaw officer told him yes it is but you guys got to enforce it then he found out to enforce it the town's got to pay for the prosecution that police officer called me and told me, he says, well, Corey, he says, uh, 
uh, the town says uh, they won't pay for prosecution. He goes, I talked to the main guy at the uh, the uh, <coughs> rector there, or the uh, whatever you call him there. I've got it somewhere here, but anyway, their main guy, who I spoke with personally two days ago, and uh, he told me, oh, I never spoke with him. And no, I didn't say we wouldn't do that. We're, he goes, we, if the police want to charge him, we will stand behind and we will charge. He goes, I don't really want it going that far, you know, because it's bad publicity. He said, <laughs> bad publicity. This man put a video out of a dying native laughing, saying it was my wife. The same guy pulled up beside me, honked his horn when I looked over, fingers me and laughs at me a couple feet from me. He said, we're helping him. Then they started to bully my children. And he doesn't want to follow through with bullying, you know, and tell me, well, if we have to, we will, but we really don't want to, you know, it's publicity and then it's got taxpayer money. Like, really? Is that how you care about it? Is that what, you know, this comes to? It's always about the dollars and cents, greed. That's pretty much what the genocide's about. Greed, yeah. dollars and cents. Yep. How many trillions of dollars are the natives owed. A lot of people have this really stupid idea that the natives are given free money from the government. No, they're not. Yeah. The natives are owed trillions of dollars for their land. So it's never free. It's the government's just giving them the tiny little piece of what they owe them. That's all. Yeah. And I people don't you. get that. No. Well, you should open up your eyes, people. You got to open up your eyes and listen and learn because Instead of just assuming, why don't you actually read, learn, understand? I haven't done so much reading in my life as I have in the last couple months. And I guarantee you, my entire life, I've never read, learned, or gone through as much as I have in the last couple months. And I am disgusted with this world's racism. The racism against my Native brothers, my Black brothers, my Asian brothers, and sisters, of course, you know, brothers, sisters, cousins, family. You're all, we're all related. We are all one people. We're called the human race for a reason. But yet you segregate us. You put us into separation. You make us, teach us in school since 1867. And I learned this. I'm watching one of the APTN, uh, or no, pardon me, not APTN. One of the uh, AMCs, which is the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, that since 1867, to the late 1990s, they were teaching systemic racism in school. Now, I found out from another gentleman just recently who's been trying to become a lawyer. He said he's disgusted that he has to take a bigotry course and pass a bigotry course in order to become a lawyer. I said, are you serious? And he goes, yes. He goes, look into it. And it's true. I'm like, this is disgusting. Why would you have to learn that just to be a lawyer? You know, is this why they're always saying lawyers are liars, right? There's some good lawyers out there. There really is. And then, yeah, there's some low-handed, underhanded ones that will do what they need to do to cover people's butts. Like, I'm sure I'm going to be going up against. But I'm not stopping. I don't give a crap what they do to me. You know, as I said, if they killed me today, it wouldn't matter to me. Because my family and my friends got my back. They have a lot of my evidence. I send things off, like I said, like I showed earlier here. I got one of these little things. This is just a small one. I have big ones. And I filled them with information. I put them in the mail and I sent them to certain people. Why? Because I'm not stupid. 
conversations can be erased, all sorts of things. They can get into your phones, your computers. It can wipe stuff out. Yeah, protect it, people. Protect your information. Protect your evidences because you're going to need it. Okay? I've seen some major disgusting things happen recently. And like I said, when I mentioned racism, ever since COVID started, the racism against Asians has quadrupled because that's all their faults now. We have COVID. No, it was one person and that person's team that decided to release this. Okay, does anybody know that in 2006, COVID-19 was patented by the U.S. government? It was then sold to the Chinese government, or given. I'm not exactly sure how it went, but I did read a big article on it. Then they started to investigate it and, you know, try to mix it between animals and humans to see what they could do. Now, whether it was released or not, I don't know. But like I said, we've listened to the governments and Trump over and over again. It was the Chinese. But you know what? All you're doing is creating more racism with these kind of words. Why don't we start realizing we're all human and one person makes a mistake does not make the whole race bad. And that's what I am disgusted with another thing, too, because we used to look at, you know, take back to a simple day of bikers. How many biker groups looked horrible just because there was a couple bad bikers? Yet we have toy runs where hundreds and thousands of bikers get together and collect toys and stuff for children that are needing in children's hospitals and stuff like that. You know, they're not all bad people just because they're bikers. Some of them just want to ride a bike and enjoy the air. It's a disgusting world we live in. It needs to change. I personally, if I could, I'd peel my skin off right now, clear coat my body and walk around like that. Mm. Then they wouldn't know who I am. They wouldn't be able to tell what my skin color is because I wouldn't have a skin. (laughs) And if anybody realized, if we all did that, we all look the same. That bleed red thing goes a long ways. It's very factual, but it doesn't change the fact that if you peel the skin off, Every single human being looks identical. Yes, I believe when it, was, it came uh, to Lillian, they wouldn't uh, uh, properly diagnose it. So, you know, and, and that's the problem is that, yeah, I agree well, with you, but I know the way the system works and the bias you said was instant, that they instantly didn't like her. And that's just instant bias against Indigenous women. And that's just incredibly unacceptable, mm-hmm. but that's ultimately what killed her. That is. It is ultimately what killed her. And that's what I'm now ultimately fighting against. And it's um, a lot of people in this town say, oh, Corey's saying all this stuff and that the town should sue him for slander. And I said, bring it on. And I said, bring it on. I said, Tom, go ahead. Sue me for slander. Defamation character. I said, because that would have to mean I'm lying. I said, why do you think they haven't done anything yet? Because I'm not lying. I said, If I was lying, I wouldn't stand here and say it all to you right in front of your dang face. I'm not afraid to say it because my wife was murdered that night. And it doesn't matter how you look at it. The police, when I called them the other day, well, no, it's neglect. We're looking, we're investigating neglect. I said, neglect? I said, I sent you a 10-page thing. He says, he goes, Corey, we're still waiting for all your information. This is the acting uh, uh, staff sergeant at the time, which I didn't know yep. wasn't even a staff sergeant, but 
he was the one I was giving contact to. And he says to me, he goes, we're still waiting for all your paperwork. I said, well, that's pretty funny because I forwarded it all on the 25th of February to your constable, which constable Elias and Bernard, who said, Corey, forward me all your stuff. We're going to actually investigate this. I said, he told me he had talked to you and you had told him to start getting information from the hospital. Obviously, that's not happening if you didn't even know that he has the information. I said, so where's the truth lie? I recorded my conversation with him. He told me he also spoke with medical examiner's office. So I called them up. They haven't heard from the police at all. More lies. Yeah, I know. So they, I'm sitting awful. here with a DTA rule right now. It's, it's don't trust anybody. How can I trust anybody when I'm being lied to left, right, and center by people? People are changing stories. People are changing things, and nobody's covering nothing. My wife is dead. I cannot bring her back. They cannot bring her back. And it was because of systemic racism. It's because of a disgusting thing that people have in their lives that they feel they have the rights to do this. And I will state this, and I have to state this. I don't care how much training, how many courses the government puts on for these people to go to and learn how to treat people, you know, of different color and all that, because they have done these courses. It's not going to change a racist when they go home at night. It's not going to change them that they pass the course. They're still going to go there and they're still going to be who they are. They're still going to do what they do. And then they're going to cheers themselves when they get home. Look what I got away with. Well, promise you this, they will not get away with this. And if I can do what I am attempting to do with the lily cam and get every one of them strapped with a camera, which we already have it, all the stuff is there. We see doctors online all the time with our computers, with our phones. We're looking at each other online right now. And people need to understand this. All the technology is there. The protection, the privacy issues, all covered already all there so let's just do it let's strap cameras to them osha which is the industry the industry go by okay starting in the u.s apparently alberta goes under that osha guideline an osha guideline is for safety and violence in the workforce industry in the healthcare industry well then why don't you have cameras on proving 24 7 that you're actually doing your job that you're not attempting to kill people but instead you're saving people's lives that you're holding the Hippocratic oath. They don't. They're gonna. It's time we change this. It's time we stop this genocide. And the only way we're gonna do that is by standing together, by standing strong, and by forcing them to do this. And that's what I'm fighting for. I cannot do anything but fight for justice and the protection of other people in my wife's honor. Because my wife, she was 10 years younger than me. She was beautiful. She was intelligent and talented, and she was taken from me. She was taken from all of us, and that's not fair. No, no. And I'm sorry, but I will not back down. Well, she's lucky. To I don't have know if you, you have any other questions for me. No. But... <laughs> you know what? That's really, I think, a great. I was way... no. Go ahead. I was the lucky one. I'm sorry, but I was the lucky one. I was blessed to have her in my life. And yes, I went through some pretty harsh times. We both did because, you know, we were growing in a relationship together and your first seven years can be real tie knot. <laughs> and we did those. We got together in 2004. 
We, you know, we, we worked hard. We went to counseling. We did a year of counseling. We got married and it was the most beautiful wedding. It was supposed to be pouring rain that day in Winnipeg. And instead, all the clouds went around Winnipeg and we had a sunny day on us wherever we were that day. It was blessed. It was meant to be. Yeah. So oh, it's wonderful. I don't know. Well, I, I just know that right now I won't back down. You have my heartfelt condolences. I can't even imagine how awful this has been for you. And I, I wanted to ask you, I seem to recall sharing a GoFundMe. Um, do you still have that active? Yeah, I do. Nobody's done anything in a month on it, but yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, will reshare actually, it. Actually, my, my daughter's, yeah, my daughter's created it for me. Um, I actually was just a, a little quick one. My, I had a lawyer, well, I have a lawyer who's working on my uh, GOA, and uh, it started off as going to be a free thing, and he changed it, going, well, you do have to pay for the filing fees, stuff like this. I'm like, yep, I know. Whatever, I don't care. Now he's proboing. I think he's changing to things to. I think he's going to be building a team instead because he realizes what this is. Yeah. He realizes how big this is, and where it's going, because he knows I'm not going to back down. And he better either get a team together or get me in contact with the proper guys because I need power. I need lawyers. I need people behind me. I need to make this go forward. And the only way to do that is to actually get into the courts to fight it. I told AHS bluntly, I'm going to have a camera strapped to everybody's chest. And they went, what? Could you repeat that, please? Well, gladly. And mm -hmm. I did. And that because, well, if you're going to fight, you're going to fight me now because I'm not backing down. You guys should be accountable 100% of the time. You're taking care of lives. The police program that went through in Quebec, one year, a 50%. You know, reduction in forcefulness, you know, because how many excessive force complaints have there been with police? Yeah. You know, crimes and all that. It was deducted by 50%. That's a huge number. Yeah. Well, you put a camera on doctor's chest, I guarantee you it'll be more than 50%. Mm. Wouldn't that because be they're now held 100% accountable for their actions. Yeah. It would be great because no more can they judge people or, 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 or be racist about skin color. They have to treat everybody equally. And that's huge. Yeah. Equality. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to walk in and not be afraid to go to the doctors anymore? There's so many people I hear that are afraid to go to an emergency room. People that have spent a man that spent a month with his wife because of it. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, and I'm afraid I can't go back to this one though. I was, told that if I go here, I'll be charged for trespassing and arrested if I go near this hospital. <laughs> How's that for funny? That's just because they're scared. Well, don't be scared of my violence. Yes, I could be violent. But be scared of what I'm going to legally do to you. Because mm -hmm. that's where it's coming down to. I promised them all legal battle, and that's what they're going to get. Right on. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. And I really... Yeah. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Uh, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Um, it's probably a good thing to cut me off, though, because I can talk for quite a few hours on this. I got <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pages of paperwork, studies, and everything I've been doing, and the things I've been looking at. Enough's enough. I'm right done. On. I'm fed up. We yep. should all be treated equally, and this is enough. And I don't care. Everybody to me is my brothers, my sisters. You are my family. Yep. 
And what this is, is enough is enough. Agreed. I stated over and over again. I also have a racism and racial profiling page. I've made, I built on Facebook. I'm paying for advertising that every day. It's called racism, racial profiling. When will it end? I I've think I just like that. Six or 7,000 people. Yeah. You know what? Um, I'd love to collaborate more on that with you because, um, you know, that I think that what happens is that we are all a little segregated in our little initiatives. So, for example, you know, um, I've been working on trying to collaborate with folks across the nation on, you know, name changes of racist schools and racist things and um, having some really great podcasts as a result of it. But that bigger picture of collaboration and teamwork, right, because you have to build relationships together. So, um, you know, it would be really great yep. to kind of centralize a lot of that and say these initiatives are happening here. These are initiatives are happening there, too. So I'd love to uh, help you with that and expand well, it. I would love to see it expanded because people, like I said, they need to know we need to get this out there to everybody. Everybody needs to have an opportunity to be able to sign, to, you know, know what they're signing, read about it, understand it and be there for people and, you know, say, yeah, I want to be part of this Yeah. because we need to stop it. And the only way to stop it is to actually action. Yes. Well, and, you know, so that's the whole conversation. Plug in my charger. Oh, I'm grateful. Okay, well, I'm going to um, do my exit. And um, I welcome you onto my show anytime. And then offline, of course, we can chit chat or uh, collaborate in different ways as well. So I'm really honored mm -hmm. that I got to spend this time with you. Thank you so much, Corey. I appreciate for you having me on here and being able to tell my story. And uh, I really want to give updates when I can. And let you know where it's going and what's happening because the story's not over. No. And it's just actually the beginning. Yeah. They did the worst thing they could have done in their in my life. And my wife doesn't not deserve to be where she is now. No. Agreed. I so, um appreciate you fighting. God bless. Fight. And God bless you. All right. Um so I'm going to do my exit and I encourage you if you want to chime in that you're more than welcome to. Um I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training or cultural first aid in almost all of them to create a safer space for indigenous people of color, those with a disability and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I wanna say thank you to the authors of uh, Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fridkin for heretohelp.bc.ca of indigenous people, cultural safety and why I should care about it that I repeated in the first hundred episodes. Their work are those cultural action tools that I have said. Uh, so please support Indigenous work like that is a part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight them and repeat them here, along with many other resources. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized people face through the structure of racism imposed on these lands. Uh, and racialequitytools.org uh, by Donna Bevins has lots of information on what internalized racism is. Uh, do and don'ts for bystander intervention by the American Friends Service Committee. If you see or experience racism, report it to Act to End Racism or text at one eight or what? Sorry, one five eight seven five zero six thirty eight thirty eight. Indigenous have been talking about our issues sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded, no more. 
honor their words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they are cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples report, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, health reform, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Jews Spirit, denying those reports as a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational and health institutions and justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from the election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, homophobia, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. A really great article that I read was Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything you heard today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Help for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and two spirit for immediate emotional assistance, call 1-844-413-6649. It is national toll free 24 seven crisis line to help with that. If you are non-Indigenous, there are uh, functioning 211 lines or distress centers in your area, but there's also 1-833-456-4566. If you see or experience racism, report it to ACT to End Racism or text uh, 587-506-3838. And also there's a trans um, lifeline. There's the Trevor Project, LGBTQ2 plus uh, youth lines, peer supports, and of course the Kids Help Home. Uh, life voice.ca has a lot of the lgbtq2 plus contact and kids help phone 1-800-668-6868 violence is an everyday reality for indigenous generations this is why i started the podcast to speak freely without interruption tone police without leadership shaming without gaslighting questions as many people don't want to hear our opinion but sure want to tell us theirs usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Just typical microaggressions. People dealing with internalized racism, those who are gatekeepers that survive off the status quo, or those who are in their trauma, and they stop people from doing the work and, de and deplete the personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I started this uh, podcast as a boundary to be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, what strength looks like through your example. Uh, I want to say thank you to my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt and strong. Uh, my stepmom for showing me what a great culture is through her Austrian roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show being my childhood friend, father of our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road. He's witnessed decades of racism and sexism, much like our guest Corey has. 
and to our friend who, or to our child who we are blessed to learn from every single day, we're really honored you chose us. You gave, you give me daily accountability to be a better, stronger person. And I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching you can and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, uh, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel where you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side-eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. My beautiful cousin would reply, or you'd be in my dish. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>